You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. You know, I was reading the the government order about how they want to change the experience for customers and, and citizens and employees. And I think it's great. And I, I think one of the first things that, that those officials can do is actually remember what it's like to be a citizen, right? So if you're trying to, I don't know, get paperwork pushed through or getting, if you're a disaster survivor or you're an immigrant or a small business owner or a veteran waiting for the months for the government to process benefits or information that you need, sit in their shoes and see what that's like. And so I think that's one of the first pieces that we don't do as people who are thinking about these things, either from a strategy, a decision-making point of view, allocating budget. It's, it's easy to say, but until you do that, you can't see what you can't see. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. There has been a massive shift in how the federal government approaches how citizens receive their services. And that has come with a more intensive focus on the world of process and customer experience design. I've referenced the executive order President Biden signed several times on this show now, which is really saying that the government must be held accountable for designing and delivering services with a focus on the actual experience of the people whom it is meant to serve. And that means viewing customer experience for things such as getting benefits and interacting with government agencies through a similar lens as the private sector. And the success of this EO is crucial, especially given the myriad of crises Americans are facing from the pandemic to inflation, to risk to the electoral system, to geopolitical threats abroad. Design here can mean the government streamlining and better integrating all the information citizens get and receive from different agencies so that, for instance, a person doesn't have to keep providing the same information over and over and that different bodies are coordinating service to the extent privacy allows, as evidenced by USA.gov site that serves as a quote-unquote front door website, which is part of the executive order mandate. Just imagine you're having a life event that requires you to navigate a web of government services, whether it's phone, email, letter, that's the current reality. Part of this mandate is to actually look at these life events as a customer journey, which is exactly what we've been doing at Genesis leveraging human-centered design to create a bespoke customer experience that meets the citizens where they are by leveraging the latest technologies available. And my guest today literally wrote the book on this. Dr. Natalie Petahoff is a globally recognized customer and employee experience strategist at Genesis and recently named a Wall Street Journal bestselling author for her book, Empathy in Action, How to Deliver Great Customer Experiences at Scale which she co-wrote with Genesis CEO, Tony Bates. We're going to discuss how to deliver empathetic experiences through technology, which, spoiler alert, is really about positive citizen outcomes, and also introduce the concept of experience as a service, which is going to drive this industry forward over the next decade. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here with us today. Hey, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just thrilled to be here. Let me start by saying I, I really enjoyed the book, not just because you read gen- it. I did you read it? not oh just God. because I'm a Genesis employee too. I think um, the the message I think is so important for where we are in the world right now. If if you work in the government space, you're you're familiar within the U.S. the recent executive order, so it's very top of mind. And as we come out of the pandemic, I think it's a perfect opportunity for us to to reimagine how experiences should be. So that's that's my first point. The second is one of the things I was struck by when when I started reading this was immediately before I got to the meat of the book was the dedication. You and Tony both dedicated this book to your mothers, which I was kind of struck by. I can't imagine that was a coincidence. So talk to me a little bit about that decision. What did what did your mother teach you 
it really had a lasting impression on you? My mom always taught me that to be kind. And <clears throat> she did a lot of work. She was a teacher. And so part of what she did was she taught people, um, especially those in lower income brackets who might not have gotten the education about nutrition, about the importance of building skills to be able to have the life that you really wanted and needed. And so I watched her transform people's lives. And so, you know, because we didn't always have a babysitter, I would go with her as she would teach some of these classes, especially in the summer and at nighttime. And, you know, at the beginning of the class, you know, you kind of see all these eyeballs looking back at your mom and kind of skeptical. And then by the end, hugs and kisses and thank yous and really seeing people transform their lives. And I could really see how just even with one person, you can really make a difference. And I think part of her approach and why she was so um, effective is that she really tried to sit in the seat and see the world through their eyes to understand where they came from, maybe why they didn't have some of this information, and then what would make a difference in their lives, not what she as a teacher thought the curriculum should be, but really asking them, you know, in your daily lives, here's here's the thousands of things I could help you or teach you. Um, but what do you need? What keeps you up at night? What are the things that you're worried about? And so that that's always stuck with me. And I think for Tony, you know, we both had moms that really uh, were were cornerstones in our life and really helped us become the people that we are. So yeah, when we were thinking about dedications you know, we both kind of said at the same time, our moms. So it was, it was a fun moment. I love that. One of the things that I, I really enjoy is when, when I'm out with my wife and our kids are with us. And so my wife's a teacher and when she runs into other kids and th- that she teaches and, and their first reaction isn't to hide, it's they want to say hi, they want to go up to her and they want to see her. And it's, it's funny because it's totally different than what I used to do with teachers, but it just shows you. And I think I love that our kids see the impact that she has on their lives and, and she's doing something she loves and she's able to impact lives. So that's so important. Um, let me ask you this. What, so what was the impetus for you to write this book? I, obviously there's been so much talk around experience. Um, and we've talked about digital experience so much, everything going digital, especially over the, the course of the pandemic and empathy hasn't been something that has always been addressed. So what was really the impetus for you and Tony to, to start putting pen to paper and get this book out? I think there were a lot of things that kind of came together all at once. Part of it was um, as a former analyst, a systems integrator, um, someone who tried to transform customer and employee experiences at many companies. Sometimes we were successful, sometimes we weren't. Um, and so my frustration was that, you know, when you make something a career and you feel like you've had some successes, but you haven't been as successful as you wished. Um, I, and I think, you know, Tony, I think he joined in uh, May of 2019 and I met him in October of 2019, way before the pandemic and empathy became a kind of a a national theme. Um, We started talking about, you know, why is the customer experience so awful and um and why hasn't it ever really been transformed and i i brought up this statistic which it, you know i think we did this as a forester analyst but also bain has reinforced it lately and if you look at 80 percent of companies or or even the government and you talk to the people in power and you ask them what do you think about the experiences employee and customer that you provide, and they'll all say, oh, you know, it's number one importance and it's really key to us. But when you ask citizens or customers or employees, only 20% really feel like the experiences that they have are good. And so that's a huge gap. And part of what, what Tony asked me was, you've been in this field a long time, why? Right? And so I started to really look at the body of work that I had done myself, all my uh, other thought leader friends. And so what we wanted to do was once and for all put in a book, 
um, kind of a thesis to say, here's why we think things have never really gone where they needed to, to go. And there's a lot of lip service. And then say, and here's some ideas about how we can go forward together. And so that, that, that was our inquiry. And, you know, I, I used to be a scientist. So anytime you start an experiment, you really never know exactly where you're going to end up. You have a thesis and you, you kind of sure. point it in the right direction. And so I think some of the conclusions that we came up with are, are pretty interesting. Did you, even, even before the book came out, did you find that when you had conversations with people around experiences, some of them didn't understand what empathy really looked like in an experience? That's so spot on. It's so interesting, right? So um, empathy seems like one of those warm and fuzzy things. And so my, um, my premise that anything that's warm and fuzzy creates a feeling. And if it creates a feeling then it has value. And so one of my superpowers has always been to be able to create ROI models out of fuzzy things. And so when we started to examine the word empathy, um, we found that when people heard it, they thought they meant, we meant sympathy, which is basically saying, gosh, I'm really sorry that's happening to you. Um, but it's not necessarily truly sitting in your seat and seeing the world through your eyes and then acknowledging that the way that you see it, um, whether it's perception or reality for you, is the way you see it. And that the person sitting across the table from you really needs to try that on for size and see the world through their eyes. And so I think um, it's it's been an interesting journey because pretty much I've had to explain to anybody that's asked about the book why empathy and what does it really mean? And so just so you know, we're not building kumbaya factories or governments, right? It's not, I mean, it's it's really about the outcomes of the people that you serve, yeah. right? In, in your particular case and your teams, it's really about our citizens and there's nothing more important right now uh, in our country to really focus on their needs. I think it's it's spot on. I mean, over the over the course of of the pandemic, my I mean, she's she's been really popular for for a while now. But my wife's really turned me on to Brene Brown, and recently we've been watching this special that she's had on. And I know in your book you talk about walking in somebody else's shoes. And when you're, what I found interesting because I I read the book and then I was watching the special and and Brene Brown explained it this way. She said, perspective is taking taking the acknowledgement that the way you see the world through your lens is as real and as true and as accurate as the lens by which I see the world. Perspective taking is listening to the truth as other people experience it and acknowledging it as truth. It's not taking off your lens and putting on their lens because that's impossible to do. Our lens is, our lens is soldered onto our heads. Empathy says, let me get curious about what you see. Let me stop and listen and hear about what you see. I know I, I struggle with that. I struggle with, cause I, I think we all, we all see the world through our own lens. And what she's really saying is you need to look at it and say, look, I'm in it with you. I'm not here to fix you. I'm not here to feel it with you. I'm here to feel, or I'm not here to feel it for you. I'm here, here to feel it with you. And you're not alone in this. I, I mean, in terms of kind of how you positioned it in the book, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Cause I found it really interesting. Well, I, I love her. Your wife sounds very special. She's smarter um, than I am. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very sweet to acknowledge her. I, I'm really glad that you um, got exposed to Brene Brown. She's one of the people that we quoted in the book. And I really love her work um, in part because I think that she's really <clears throat> bringing to focus, you know, some of the things that I think in governments and companies that we've kind of steered away from, which is feelings, right? And feelings, uh, one of the most uh, profound research that's been done is from a group called HeartMath. And they found that most people make decisions based on how they feel. And the reason is because when input comes into your body, you get a visceral feeling in your gut. And that visceral feeling in your gut then controls how your brain reacts. And it's either reactive or proactive. Um, and that's really where all our decisions come from. So I think when you're really embracing empathy, 
uh, Brene's um, Brene's definition is really key because, and I think probably the biggest piece is people thinking that they know what other people need, right? And so coming from this place of we know better than you, right? And I think you know, we created the empathy pillars, which are listen, understand and predict, act and learn, which is very similar to what Renee is saying is in that you need to be curious, right? You need to really stop and listen and understand what it is that they're really asking you and what, what they need. Because, I mean, let's bring it to something really practical, right? So you're on a website, you're trying to look for something, you have a question, you know, if you get in the call queue, it's going to be really long and you have a meeting in 10 minutes. So you try the chatbot and you ask the chatbot a question and then it gives you a canned answer and it doesn't help at all. Right? So if you're an executive or a government official, go on your website and see if you can get what you need done and then see how that feels, right? Sit in the shoe of your citizen or your employee or your customer and then realize you're not helping them you're not understanding what it is to be in their shoes. And then really decide, it's kind of an internal shift that I think people have to go through to get out of this pattern of thinking that we all know better what's good for somebody else and really sit down and be honest with ourselves about what it is that we're trying to do when we talk about changing citizen experiences. And then once you kind of have that mind shift, so a lot of people say, well, what technology should we be using that? And one of the most important things that I found in talk, talking about this is it's the technology, and what we can talk about that, it is really important. And we have technology that we've never had before. So that does make a difference. But unless you come from this place of, I really get where you're coming from, I've experienced what you've experienced. I agree. It's not good. Now I really want to change my strategy and my approach. And I'm, I'm actually going to do things differently. And until people, government officials and executives, until they decide to do that, there's another quote that we have from Einstein. It's really the definition of insanity because what's going to happen is you're just going to get you're going to do things the same way and then expect different results and you'll just get more of the same. And so the book is kind of a manifesto to don't do that. <laughs> it's just that simple. I, I, so I'm, I love, I love leadership books. And one of the things that continuously I, I see patternistically in some of these books is they talk about the importance of, of seeing your blind spots. Do you think, I mean, what, what you're saying makes absolute sense go through these processes understand it from a from a human-centered perspective do you think some of this is just leadership and whatever market you're in whatever industry and just an unwillingness to want to see those blind spots i don't think it's necessarily not wanting to see it i do think there are blind spots and when you have a blind spot you can't see what you can't see yeah. and it's they're Blind spots are really interesting because when you have that aha visceral moment and you're like, oh, that's what you meant, um, then it then it just kind of starts to kind of like an Excel spreadsheet. It kind of like you click one button and then like all these other things change in the spreadsheet. It's kind of like that same thing. And I think some of the blind spots are executives being so far away from actually receiving the services that they provide. So, you know, I was reading the the government order or I guess proclamation about how they want to change the experience for for customers and, and citizens and employees. And I think it's great. And I, I think one of the first things that that those officials can do is actually remember what it's like to be a citizen, right? So if you're trying to, I don't know, get paperwork, you know, pushed through or getting, uh, you know, if you're a disaster survivor or you're an immigrant or a small business owner or a veteran waiting for the months for the government to process benefits or information that you need, sit in their shoes and see what that's like. And so I think that's one of the first pieces that we don't do um, as 
people who are thinking about these things, either from a strategy, a decision-making point of view, allocating budget. Um, it, it's, it's easy to say, but until you do that, you can't see what you can't see. And um, I think we just have to all forget that we're all citizens, we're all customers, and we're all employees. And somehow when we go to our job, I see this kind of amnesia where we take on this corporate or government persona and we seem to forget the experiences that we've personally had. And so I encourage everyone to, to take those experiences that have frustrated you into, you know, and make that part of your, your decision-making process. Let me ask you this. You said earlier that you used to be a scientist, which I, I refuse to believe. I think you, you, maybe your title is in scientist, but I'm sure the way you approach things is, is very much in that, in that manner. As you, as you waded into this research, did you have any preconceived notions going into it that maybe shocked you? Or was there one thing that really surprised you when you, when you and Tony were kind of going through some of your findings for this book? I think one of the most influential things was Clayton Christensen's look at the job to be done research. I think that when you really sit down and look at the job to be done and you really look at the experiences that you're trying to deliver, you can start to really see that you're not really getting the job to be done completed. And I think probably one of the biggest aha moments for me having been an analyst um, and promoting a lot of these new technologies over the years is that every time a new technology would come out, we as analysts would say, this is it, this is going to change everything, right? And there was a whole time when people were saying, well, we're not going to, we're not going to have, um, you know, nobody's going to call the contact center. And what companies are finding is they have more call volume than they've ever had before. So I would say what I and others are probably guilty of is really not taking this microscopic look at why, right? Versus just jumping on a bandwagon. I also think another blind spot is that whether you're in the government sector or whether you're in corporations, what gets measured gets managed. And so if you look at citizens, you look at um, customers and employees, there's no place on the budget or the P&L where the experiences of those people, your constituents, are ledgered. There's, you know, maybe for government, you know, whether, you know, the number of voters that you get or for companies, maybe the number of customers you have or your customer attrition, but we don't really account for their value. And so I think that there is a very short-termism look at the value. And so part of it is, is really creating new business models and government models to look at what is the value of providing great experiences. And in government, it could be votes. And if you don't get votes, you're not in office. And if you're not in office, well, there's that, right? So at the end of the day, it makes a really big difference, these experiences that you're providing. You talked about all the technology that's available right now. I think we're in, uh, I've had, I've had some guests on, one of them talked about this being kind of a renaissance era for, for government innovation and technology, which I think is true. And we have all this technology at our disposal, especially around experience. Why haven't there been more meaningful changes around customer experience, employee experience in, in government? Why haven't we been able to keep up with maybe the pace of where, uh, private sector is is going, in your opinion? That's a good question. Um, I would say the the ability for government to really um, put aside partisan points of view and really serve citizens, right? And hold up, you know, versus being so stuck on, you know, a political point of view, um, really looking at who am I here to serve, right? And I think we've kind of gotten away from the whole point of government, which is to really serve the people that elect you. And uh, lots of people have lots of opinions about what that looks like and what politicians should be doing and what government should be doing. And 
while I think all points need to be considered and valid, I would want to do a giant survey with citizens and ask them from their point of view, you know, for all the things that the government can provide, how do you feel about getting these services? And once we have that kind of information, I think that would be an interesting study. And I think then that would really help, um, help people start to think about the strategy different. I think the other piece and truthfully, um, you know, having been an analyst and covered technology for many years, we have actually been limited by the technology that we've had up until now. And so one of the things that we do in the book is we look at the shift from the agrarian society to the first, second, third, fourth, and now we're in the fifth industrial revolution. And what you see is that we've categorized our society by the name of the technology that was most prominent at the time. And when you shift from one industrial revolution to the next, you see a huge change in technology. And where we are right now is we have the ability based on the cloud data and AI to be able to um, execute so many things so much quicker. So for instance, the ability to come up with a vaccine very, very quickly had a lot to do with using data and AI in the cloud. So whether it's a vaccine or whether it's providing a great customer experience, we now have technology that can do things that it's never been able to do before. And I think we're just at the very beginning of where we can go with this. And so, you know, that means um, whether you're a company or someone in the government, it means that you probably have a lot of legacy systems, many of which are on-prem. And when you're on-prem, you just don't have the flexibility and agility to be able to make changes on the fly to be able, like, so for instance, let's say there's, you know, a natural disaster and you need to change the IVR for FEMA or something. It's, it's a, it's very difficult, right? Um, So when you're in the cloud, the ability to make changes quicker is, is actually really possible. I mean, within minutes. And I think that part of it also is, you know, there's a lot of issues around data privacy and a lot of, I mean, in the very beginning of cloud, certainly there were a lot of concerns and I, I don't know that the cloud was as secure as, as on-prem systems were, but the advances now are so phenomenal that when you start to look at the data security in the cloud versus what on-prem systems can do, it's actually as good and in most cases better than what most governments or companies can um, can create themselves. So I think it's really looking at um, what you have and where you want to go, and then deciding. Like, and this goes back to the financial part: deciding to spend the money to move from on-prem to cloud, to move from legacy systems um, that don't orchestrate experiences. And what I would say is what I see in companies and in government is dozens of 1-800 numbers and dozens of websites and things are not, the the experience is not orchestrated from beginning to end from from the citizen's point of view. And so that's part of when we talk about technology, we're talking about experience orchestration. And unless you have the ability to take in data make it more intelligent with AI, accurately predict how that citizen is feeling and what they need and want, and then be able to take that intelligence and deliver self-service content, like uh, just you know a content article or a bot that can interact with you and actually get you what you need, or a human being. Um, we're really not providing people what they want and need. And then the ability to learn, which is go back through all those experiences, you know, not hundreds or thousands, but millions of experiences, look for experience gaps, and then be able to make real-time changes. That's that's the future. Wow. I mean, so you have me over here furiously writing down things that I want to say because <laughs> you, you unpacked a lot there. So, I mean, first of all, um, it, 
what you touched on at the very beginning of that is is what I'm most excited about is is me and my team at Genesis are are working on really querying the citizens, understanding kind of what's important to them and doing that for multiple reasons. One, we want to make sure we're optimizing what we're delivering, but at the same time, we want to be able to provide that feedback to the government so they understand as well kind of what citizens are looking for in relation to maybe what their expectations are. We hear so much that the the consumer um, apps of the world are really driving expectations, but we want to really, from a scientific perspective, understand, is that true? And what are the nuances of that? So I think that's one. The other thing is, is you touched on the importance of cloud in this space, and I think it's completely disrupted the, the experience industry um, in a number of ways. You touched on them earlier. I mean, one of them is, is simple scale, scalability, and the ability to get things out quickly, which we found during the pandemic was vitally important, right? When everything had to go to digital, it was companies that had foundationally pivoted into the cloud that were able to provide the value to government entities to make sure that citizens were getting the services that were truly vital in those moments. So I think that's one. Cost savings is the other, which it's reactive, but still important. Um, But to me, and as you talked about the orchestration of experience, one of the biggest values is the ability to speak to all these different systems um, to orchestrate things, truly orchestrate things. Whether you're a government organization moving from a legacy IT posture into a more digitally transformed organization, um, you're going to have a bunch of different systems that you need to have kind of bi-directional speaking to each other to make sure that you can create the type of experiences that are expected. And to me, that's where the cloud brings through these APIs brings some of the most value is being able to really have the data kind of triggering some of these experiences, automating some of these experiences and going all the way into what you and I were talking about before driving outcomes, right? Because ultimately empathy is driving outcomes. It's the word or the phrase time tax was used a lot throughout the executive order. And really what that boils down to is as a citizen, it's not wasting my time, which is vitally important. That's empathetic. So all these systems talking to each other, data driving a lot of these experiences, I think ultimately that's one of the greatest values cloud is bringing. Would you agree or, or what are your thoughts on that? Oh my gosh, we could talk for hours. I, I'm geeking so- out. I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> we got to do this again. Um, Cause I could just go deep and wide on all these things. So think about your citizens. They're on their Peloton bike. They're exercising. They jump in an Uber or Lyft to go to the Apple store to get a really cool new watch. And then they stop at Starbucks to um, get some coffee and use the Wi-Fi. And then they log on to the government website and try to get something done. And it's a horrible experience. So do consumer experiences drive the expectations for government, for companies? Absolutely. And what these companies have done is they're not selling a bike. They're not selling taxi rides. They're not selling um, a computer or coffee beans. They're selling an experience. And it's why people are so loyal. So if you want loyalty, if you want votes, then create experiences that people will give their loyalty to. Orchestration is a really important point here. And so the way that, um, the way that we've likened it um, is that let's say that you have an orchestra. And in the orchestra, there's all these different instruments. And there's actually families of instruments. And think about the first time that you ever heard maybe your kid's band playing and everybody's kind of doing their best, right, with their instrument, but they're not really in tune and they're not really following the conductor and it just kind of sounds like awful and it hurts your ears, but as a parent, you're smiling um, because you love them. So that's what I think most contact centers and most customer experience or government experience Um, organizations look like is it's a mess and it sounds terrible, right? It's just horrible. Now, think about if you had a 
maestro, a conductor, someone who could orchestrate all those different instruments and have each instrument come in at the perfect time and to play in harmony. That's what we're talking about when we talk about experience orchestration. It's really, and what Genesis has now become is that experience orchestration piece. So it's not necessarily that you would like getting really commercial here. It's not necessarily that Genesis can provide or wants to be the provider of every single piece of technology in your system. That's unrealistic, right? But we are the experience orchestration engine. We do enable the ability for all these pieces to come together and to create an amazing experience. And I think at the end of the day, that's part of, you know, you asked, you know, if Tony and I had any ahas, um, that was one of them that, that, that piece, that orchestration piece is key because anytime you provide customer experience, what you're really looking at is you're looking at the ability to be able to create an end to end experience. And then I can touch on costs. So when I was just presenting to a very large bank, they said, well, Nat, this all sounds really interesting. So are you saying we have to spend more money, but in the long run, it's going to make better experiences? And I said, well, actually, you're going to save, you're going to, you have to spend money because you're, you're doing something different. But at the end of the day, you're going to save a lot of money. So for instance, Generally, when you first talking, start talking to someone, right, whether it's a bot or an agent, the first piece of that is, you know, identifying who that person is and then figuring out how can I help them. And then they have to tell their long-winded story. And then that agent or, or employee has to go and like look stuff up and then the system is running slow and then the database gets stuck and then they have to check with their supervisor. And that's generally the experience. And then maybe the last minute or so, you maybe are able to give that person an answer. And so part of what we're looking at with the empathy pillars is this ability to listen, right? And let's say you've logged onto a website or you've you've validated, you know, they have your phone number so they know who you are if you're you're um, calling or using a voice IVR. Immediately they know who you are, right? And so that's done through data, right? Customer event data, which is could be press an IVR button, speak into an IVR, it could be um, logging onto a website and then chatting with a chatbot or maybe doing SMS on your phone. So immediately we can help to validate who you are and we can kind of start to see what you're interested in and what you're calling about or you're interacting with us about. And then that's the understand and predict. So we're taking customer event data, we're augmenting, segmenting it with AI and we're understanding and we, with very high accuracy, we're able to predict what that next best action from your point of view is going to be. And then we're able to quickly take action and get you the help that you need. So now we're cutting down the time, right? So the cognitive burden on the agent, the cognitive burden on the customer, the frustration, because we're really getting to the meat of what somebody wanted. And then there might be other things, you know, that relationship building things that someone might say, you know, I see that you are also, you know, you're, you have a, retirement event coming up, would you like to talk to somebody about that, right? So there's a lot of ways where technology can now do things that we've never been able to do before. And by being able to orchestrate all the different technologies that would give you information to customer events. So it could be a marketing app. It could be, um, it could be, uh, you know, a, a CRM app, it could be your customer database. There's a lot of different ways that you can get to that information. And when you do that, now you're really having that data available to you to put to use from that citizen's point of view, be able to use AI in ways that we've never been able to do, and then deliver on the promise, right? And, and then be able to go back and using computational analysis and look at the voice of the citizen and look at the, did that person get what they needed? Were we effective as a government agency to get them what we needed? And in the back of your mind, you may not be looking at an ROI model, but you are looking at, will I get, will people vote for me next time, right? Because every experience they have is a vote in your direction. And so being able to use computational analysis to look at the voice of the citizen and the outcomes of your citizen 
and the outcomes of your organization, right? Because what if it takes, you know, months and days of somebody's time and effort to be able to get somebody something they needed when you could have automated that with technology? It just doesn't make any sense from a, a loyalty standpoint and, and from a cost standpoint. I mean, there's billions of dollars being wasted by not having some sort of orchestration engine like this. At least that's, that's my three cents. Yeah, I've been really fascinated, I, I think, by the, the as-a-service model, too. And that's it sounds like that's kind of what you're describing, especially what you and Tony kind of introduced in the book is around experience as a service. I, I was having a conversation with, with an analyst the other day where he was basically posturing that my grandkids are probably not going to buy a car because of, there's going to be transportation as a service where when you need to get from A to B, you can go actually get a car drive and, and facilitate that, but you're actually not going to have to take the ownership aspects of owning a vehicle and it's going to make things easier. And um, I think that's kind of part of what you're describing. It's the, the experience as a service, not only saving money, but still orchestrating across all these different platforms, the experiences that your organiza organization needs to do at scale on demand, right? Is that kind of the idea? That is, that is, you got it. That, that is that is where we're going. And that, I think that's the future. And I, I think a lot of things, so I think the whole world is really moving from products to experiences. And so when you look at like a company like Starbucks, I mean, there's lots of coffee shops, right? But what they did was instead of focusing on the coffee bean or the product, so product innovation, and I think they do a really good job with, you know, the, the beans that they grow and how they harvest them and all that. So that's important it's table stakes, right? But now what they've done is they've moved from product innovation to experience orchestration. And I think that you're right, you know, companies that make cars really have to start looking at will people buy a car or will they, will we all go to some sort of ride sharing service? And I know it was interesting to see um, some of the large automotive uh, companies start to invest in being the providers for some of the rideshare companies because they can see where, you know, people don't necessarily want the burden of, of owning a, a car. I mean, I bought my car through Carvana and it was the most fantastic experience I've ever had. Um, I know they're going through some hard times right now, but um, I would never go to a dealership ever, ever, ever again. Yeah, I think it's going to completely disrupt the market. I think Tesla is doing the same thing, right? Where they're bypassing that regional model, which, um, which I think is going to be kind of the wave of the future. Um, yeah, it's one, a, it's we're really looking at how do you create your strategy and your business model, and I don't mean like business just in business, but really, you know, for the government, what is their model to deliver the things that they're meant to deliver? and looking at new ways and, and really looking at some of these consumer experiences. I know when I was speaking to this large bank, you know, they, they feel like they have the best financial products and services, right, that they could offer, but they know that their experience for the customer is not the best. And so they're looking at all the fintech startups and they're really feeling that they have to look at that as examples of how they can provide. So you look at something like Zelle um, that got implemented because of apps like Venmo, right? So you're starting, what you, what you see is this incubation and explosion now based on data, AI, and cloud of all these kind of startup apps that looked at the way that we did things and said, here's the friction point. It doesn't make sense to the person I'm serving. And I'm going to go create something fantastic. And so there's somebody in somebody's garage or basement thinking about whatever it is that you do and creating something that's just going to just going to be fantastic. I'll tell you, I, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. This is something obviously I'm passionate about being being at Genesis and, and living this day to day. So um, I really appreciate you coming on and, and having this conversation with me. Uh, I want to ask you any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience today. And, and as you're thinking about those, I'm, I'm curious to know kind of what, what's the legacy that you're, you're hoping to leave with this book. I'm sure that's something you and Tony discussed 
um, in terms of what, what change you're hoping to, to drive with this? As you close out today, what do you see that legacy or that change being? I think the first one would be for people in positions of positional power to really grok this information and to really recognize that where they've been coming from is a government business centric mindset. And until you shift out of that and you truly see it from citizens, employees, and customers' point of view, you're not going to be able to innovate your company or your government. It's just not going to happen. Um, and once, once, like if I could get 20% of the key people in the world to do this, well, even 5% would be great. Um, that's where I see real change coming. And then I guess, you know, if I had to look back a hundred years from now, um, and I, I don't necessarily expect to be living, but you never know with the advances in AI and cloud and, and health, health, you know, capabilities, maybe, right. It would be fun to be someone. I, I think what Tony and I would like is to be remembered as people at the very beginning of the fifth industrial revolution who were advocating for the shift in mindset and advocating for a shift in accountability, a shift in leadership and culture, and a shift in how we develop and use technology. And I mean, it's really the moment in time where human capabilities and technology and collaboration are meant to come together. And so if I can be remembered for helping that to become a reality, that would be, yeah, that would be golden. I love that. I think whenever I think of, of situations, uh, especially challenging ones, like we've been through, the best you can do is really look around and use the, the data points that you have at your disposal in that very moment and make, make the best decision you can. And I think it, that's kind of what you and Tony have done is taking a look and say, you know what, based on based on what the need is, this is this is the best we should be looking at, guys. This this is best in class, and we should be at looking at this as the North Star. And I think um, if there is a legacy to be had by this book, and, and that's that legacy, I think there's there's probably not a better one that you could be remembered for. So um, I really appreciate the time again today for, for being on the show with us, having this conversation. It's a really important one, especially at the time we're in. So um, thank you again. Thank you so much. And, and keep me posted. I want to hear, I want to hear all the good things that you're doing. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to build on our conversation and talk about the future of citizen delight measurement. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast. Stay right there. your citizens at the center of government services with Genesis, the global provider of modern customer and employee experience solutions. With Genesis technology, government agencies at all levels deliver citizen-centric support that ensures constituents are remembered, heard, and understood every time they connect with you. Deliver on the promise of a digital government with Genesis. To learn more, including FedRAMP solutions, visit genesis.com government. That's G-E-N-E-S-Y-S dot government. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Natalie Pettehoff in the last segment. And she said something that I think was really important. What gets measured gets managed. And I want to unpack that statement a little bit with my next guest, Chrissy Lindsay. She's the Senior Director of Experience Innovation at Genesis, and she's working on the future of experience measurement. Very cool stuff. Chrissy, thanks for being here with us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. In the first segment, we talked a lot about what to focus on when building a next generation customer experience, especially around empathy and technology. But what we really didn't cover much was on measurement. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about this side of things. Tell me a little bit about how you are seeing these experiences being measured today and what's different about how your team is approaching this. You know, it's really interesting. I, I have been a data nerd for a long time. I am constantly interested in what's being measured for anything like logistics. How are you measuring speed? Are you measuring accuracy? Are you measuring efficiency? How, how do companies think about it? How do I think about it? I'm constantly trying to optimize of everything. And the thing that I see most with all of the measurements that people have been using for a long time is really around 
measuring for their team, but not for their customer necessarily. They're measuring to optimize their bottom line, you know, like in the grocery store when they put the peanut butter and the jelly far apart. So you have to go past other things to buy more stuff in the grocery store, right? That's kind of always been one of the one of the the old techniques that people would use and now they're sitting in the same aisle, but putting the milk at the back of the store so you have to walk by more things for a commonly bought item. So they're optimizing for their bottom line. They're not optimizing for customer experience. They're not thinking about that mom with, you know, two toddlers that's trying to just get in and get some milk and go home, right? So I, I, I've thought about it from that perspective for a really long time. And, and just who are we trying to help with these different measures? Um, and and what's really important to customers? You know, some of the things that, that businesses, governments, people do is, is a little bit selfish. It's for themselves. It's for their bottom line. And it's not really going to work in the future. You know, people are willing to pay more for a better experience now. So we have to figure out how to measure that experience. We have to figure out how we can better provide the experiences that customers want and see what impact that has on the bottom line. So whether it's, you know, taking a little longer with a customer service call or taking a little a little more time to teach somebody how to solve a problem on their own next time instead of worrying about you know old school metrics like talk time or or um, handle time those aren't necessarily the right metrics for an experience economy which is really where we're headed on the digital side of things it feels like there's so many different rabbit holes that you go down on this experience journey, right? It's almost like a build your own adventure, if this, then that. So how do you go about measuring things that can be that complex? Oh, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, this is a data rich environment for sure. So we, we try to start with what really matters most to customers. What, you know, when we're, when we're investigating something, we look at what is the most important thing to them. And then we look at what are the most important things to improve that particular business units, um, their KPIs. What are they most worried about performing? Is it hitting their margin? Is it, you know, is it making sure that they have enough staff? Is it whatever it is that they're looking for? And, And focusing on one or two things and making sure that those two things can give you indicators toward the direction it's gonna move. And then you can expand, but start small, run a little experiment and then expand into those digital spaces where you're really going to be able to get even more data. So what would be some of your recommendations then to an organization out there that is shifting into this digital world that we're living in, especially post COVID, everything's digital. So if you weren't before, you definitely are now for the most part, and they are now onboarding all of this data what are some of the best ways for that organization to leverage this information and drive it into uh, kind of actions around creating a better customer experience? Oh, that's a great question. Um, look at where your customers are spending time. So when and and are they spending time there because it's fun? Like if you're if you're doing something interactive on your site or in your digital space where they're building something or building a demo, are they spending time there because it's fun or are they spending time there because they're frustrated and they can't figure out how to get to the next step? Kind of iron out those high friction points. Yeah, absolutely. And you can do that with the data. If you're if you're building in a digital experience for your customers or you're building out, you know, chat bots or things like this to help help with some of the staffing issues or just offload the easy, you know, air quotes, easy stuff, right? If you're trying to offload the easy stuff so that your team of customer customer service people can answer more difficult questions, make sure that those easy questions are really understood by your AI, by your digital experience, and your customers can get the answer quickly and easily. And if they can't, you should really focus on taking the digital time down or making it very engaging so it should be fun to use not just not just very stark black and white um 
if it's not visually compelling, then you have an opportunity there to make it something that people don't dread. You know, when people think about the DMV, they're just like, oh, the DMV, okay, I'm ready. And they mentally gear up for battle, right? They expect it to be hard. In my state, in North Carolina, when you need to renew your driver's license or something, you go online and it's it's all done through a chatbot. And it's, it's a very, um, it's not always easy because it's still a chatbot, but it's very conversational. So, and, and I'm sure that they're gathering those metrics on when do people have to reword a question? So your chatbot's not understanding. They have to change their language in order for the, for the bot to understand. But I haven't been inside a DMV in years because I can get it all done online, which is great. And, you know, that offloads work from their offices. It keeps people safer nowadays, right? You don't have to go sit in a room and wait for two hours for your, your DMV appointment or whatever um, to, to get to do that. So I think really focusing on the customer side of things or your um, constituent side of things, if you're thinking about a politician, make it easy for them to give you information, give you feedback. And I think the last thing is when you get that feedback from, from someone, use it, like learn from it, take advantage of that information and, and know that, you know, if, if you have one person that says, oh, this thing doesn't work. Okay, go check it out. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. But if you have a hundred people tell you, Brian, this, this spot right here is a problem. Well, now you're starting to get some real actionable information that you've got to do something about it, or you've got to accept that there's nothing that you can do about it. And that's going to remain a friction point and you've got to find another way to make it up to your customer if your tool just won't do x right it it can't change in that way then you've got to find some other way to prepare your customer for that so that you've set their expectation properly it's very similar to kind of what we we talked about net with uh, natalie before when we were having the conversation around empathy one of the things that she talks about in the book is walking in somebody's shoes but i also told her one of the things that I've I've also seen, and uh, Brene Brown's is the one I reference here, but she talks about not just that, but really when somebody tells you something, believe it. Don't look for don't look for reasons why it might not be true, or or don't look to validate things. Have have enough understanding and empathy to to meet them where they are and believe what they're saying. And it's kind of exactly what you're saying. If you're if you're hearing from the people that are going through these experiences that this is a bad experience. Don't just say, yeah, well, we'll, we optimize it here and here. So you must be wrong. Say, oh, okay. I hear you. It, and I'm getting this a lot. This is probably a bad experience. Um, and really believing that I think that's an important aspect of it too. Would you agree? Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think that's a, that's a common thing. You know, when you, when you bring feedback to a, a group or a team who's, working hard, right? You know, it's not like there are people that are just out here at their jobs, like, yeah, I don't really care about the customer. That's not what happens. People care a lot. Especially in public service. Especially in (laughs) public service. Especially in public service. People care a lot. But it's so, like, just human instinct is, well, I don't have that problem, so it's probably not real. They did it wrong or whatever. It's like, you know what? If they did it wrong, that's on you too. You have to make it so that they can't do it wrong. You, part of your job as providing this tool is to educate on use. And you've got to make your tools intuitive and, and engaging. And if a customer says something was hard, then it was hard. And, and you just have to accept that and do better. Like embrace it and do better is really, really just the way we have to think about it. You know, on my team, we say, you know, one step better every day because we're trying to we're we're kind of making making a new space here, right? And we spend a lot of time testing out models and and building things that don't work. But sometimes you learn just as much from things that don't work work as you do from finding the magic key that unlocks all of the secret insights, right? Learning learning what not to do is just as important. And sometimes that's what you learn from your customers. When you think you've got this great new easy button and customers are like, I don't know what to do with that button. So I'm never yeah. going to press it. Well, I think it was Thomas Edison that said, I didn't fail a thousand times. I just found a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. And yeah. he's just improving and iterating as he was going. I, Absolutely. I, I can hear the passion voice. I'm excited to ask you this question. As you've been going through this process, 
What's been the most interesting thing that you've learned so far? Oh man, you know, it's, I think my favorite thing when I'm looking at, um, when I'm looking at data in, in, in a bunch of different places, right? So we look at our billing experience, our technical support experience, our, uh, you know, our onboarding experience, our contract experience. We're looking at all of these different things. I think the most interesting thing to me is the types of customers that give a little more grace. So when when I look at our billing data and I break it down by the types of customers we have, finance customers, public sector customers, technology customers, our finance customers are a little more forgiving of our billing experience. You know, if you have a billing dispute, nobody likes nobody likes when their bill is wrong. It doesn't matter what it's for, whether it's your tax bill, your cable bill, you know, your vendor bill. Um, finance customers are a little more forgiving of the billing team because they understand that space. They understand that finance tools are complicated. They understand how these things can happen, right? Technology customers expect the tools to be very advanced and high tech and and they are not as forgiving of the billing experience. It's completely the opposite for technical support. Technology customers understand cloud technology is complicated. Finance customers are like, I got this cloud stuff so you guys could help me make it easier and why, why it feels hard to me, right? So it's completely the, I just think it's so fascinating when you think about where they're coming from and when you put yourself really in the customer's shoes, their expectations and their understanding of the space that they're playing in is so different. I like I can't stop thinking about this and I can't wait to find out where we're going to find other little pockets that are like that um, as we go even deeper into this. It just, it just blows my mind every time I think about it. So you, you've taken a lot, uh, taken a lot of looks at, at different data points and you've seen experiences from some of the largest brands all over the world I'm going to ask you this question as we kind of wrap up. It's it's a simple question, but it's probably not as simple as some people think. What makes a good customer experience? Well, that's really up to the customer, isn't it? Um, and I think it's definitely not simple, right? It's 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 simple to throw out some some little one-liners and say, oh, well, you know, whatever the customer wants, but. It, it's it has to go beyond that, right? Like I think part of it is anticipating what they're going to need, um, in in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming, in a way that doesn't feel like you're forcing them to make a decision that they didn't want to make. It it has to be something where the customer feels like, wow, everything I needed was just where I expected it to be, and they weren't trying to push me to do anything I didn't want to do. We talk a lot about meeting the customer where they are, which I think is important. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's, it's such a hard thing to do. And this is why I think the way we're approaching what do customers care about? And then how are we doing delivering that is it's, it seems very simple, but it's so important. You know, if you're measuring the wrong things, if you're, if you're using, you know, customer effort score, customer sat score, NPS, if you're using something like that, it's really, you know, NPS has gotten a lot of people to start thinking about customers and customer experiences. And it's it's been used for a long time. It's It's not my favorite because it doesn't tell you what to do with this information, right? For those like who I, don't know what NPS is, why don't you explain it to me? Oh, sure. Yeah. Net promoter score. So you score, you've probably all taken these surveys where zero to 10, would you, based on your experience with insert thing here, would you recommend this company or product, right? So it's not always the right question to ask. Most people aren't in a position to recommend a, you know, a contact center solution or, don't go around hanging out with their friends at the pub saying, oh, hey, you guys, you got to get some of this cable company, right? Like, that's not really how people work. And there's no way to know, like, oh, Bob had a great experience with the billing team, so he's definitely referred us three more times, right? That's not, it's not really indicative of, of how your customer's actually feeling 
Well, we, we, right we, also, that minute. we also talked about all the different arms and limbs of a digital experience, right? You go down so many different paths. Yeah. How do you measure each one of those sections? I think you you can't have it as simple as what MPS has done, where they're trying to obviously get engagement, right? When you mm -hmm. simplify a survey to that level, you're tr you're trying to get as many people to answer the query as possible, but what value does it really do if if the information can't be leveraged to make whatever experience it is that you're doing better? And I think that's the big difference. It's getting the information or getting the data and being able to assimilate it into information to make those experiences better. And that that is what NPS isn't really doing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, you know, NPS got a lot of people looking forward, right? You know, there's no way to take away from what NPS has done in the industry at all. I think we're we're all just trying to look for the next thing as as people are really starting to look for a better, more collaborative experience end to end. And that's what we want to help build. Makes sense. Hey Chrissy, thanks again for being here. I, it was a really good way to kind of tie a bow on the the conversation we have with Natalie around creating these great digital experiences for customers and then ways you can improve them and refine them and, and make them better. So Thanks again for, for sharing some of your knowledge with us today. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast or wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittistray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.